do you think it appears to you that, forgive me for the way I have to word this, but we got to respond to the claims that are being made, that God gave Brian Simmons secrets of Greek that scholars have overlooked for all these years? That claim is so incredibly arrogant, I can hardly believe it. You have just stumbled upon my passion project. This is where real scholars will come and test the claims of Brian Simmons, his wild claims about his new version of the Bible called the Passion Translation. This is a suddenly very popular new version of the Bible, and there are a lot of serious issues that we need to take a look at. And... Well, you're going to get all the lowdowns. Today's interview is with Dr. Daryl Bach. I hired Dr. Daryl Bach to take a thorough look at the book of Ephesians in the Passion Translation. He wrote a paper about the topic, and now this is the interview where he's going to give us a lot of data, a lot of behind-the-scenes info so we can understand things like, for instance, specific theological changes that Brian Simmons has put into the book of Ephesians, how it gives too much authority to believers and redirects the focus of a passage from God to us. This goes on in Ephesians in the Passion Translation. We're also going to be looking at how the Passion Translation alters the biblical teaching on slavery. Oddly, this happens in several books of the New Testament in Brian Simmons' version of the Bible. And stick around to hear the discussion on the marriage passage. Brian Simmons changes issues dealing with men and women and their relations and marriage in the New Testament. So you're going to be hearing that as well, all in today's interview. I've also separated this video into a bunch of timestamps. That's so that you can navigate your way through the video and find exactly the kind of content that you're looking for, as well as reference other people to it. So several scholars have reviewed the translation, written papers on it, and I'm doing interviews with them. And all of that content is totally free. It's available in the video description. Dr. Bach, you have a, a CV that's longer than my arm. I'll actually link it below for those who want to know more about you. It's much longer, a lot longer than my arm. And I'm six foot tall. Um, so you're, you're accomplished. You're very well known for those of us who study kind of in these circles. But for those who don't know you yet, what work have you done specifically related to Bible translations? Well, I've worked on background work for the uh, New Living Translation. I've done uh, on Luke and Acts. Well, on Luke and then Luke and Acts for the New English Translation. Uh, I've done a little bit of consulting work on... Um, on the uh, new revised standard version that uh, that uh, Bill Mounts worked on, so those are my Bible translation credentials. Right on. <clears throat> Don't mind my my cat here on the side. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's that's exactly what we're looking for with this tra which, with this passion project that I've hired scholars to look at. We really want so informed guys who've spent lots and lots of hours so they can bring that sort of mature wisdom and knowledge into this realm that is. Is it's just lacking. There just aren't very many reviews of this work. So the first question I have for you is this. Is it truthful to call this work a translation? I'm gonna I'm gonna quote to you from their website, from Broad Street Publishing's official statements about the Passion Translation. They say, quote, the Passion Translation is a new version of God's Word that is considered a translation because it uses the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts to translate the essential message of the scriptures into contemporary English. What do you think about that? Uh, this is a paraphrase. It's not a translation. Uh, that's pretty clear, and the notes make that clear. The notes make that very clear in spots where they refer to Aramaic text for the New Testament, which, of course, um, is not the case. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, at least the books that we have that comprise the New Testament. Now, it is true that the background language in the culture was Aramaic, but the texts that we actually have for the New Testament are all Greek texts. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the Aramaic stuff uh, really soon here, actually. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this translation. And everybody, all the scholars were writing me back going, wait, what? What's what's this stuff about the Aramaic I'm seeing here? 
So in your paper, you've actually treated it as a paraphrase. You've, you've just dealt with it as if it was a paraphrase, even though they claim it's not. Um, you wrote this, I will treat this as a paraphrase and not a translation because it is not a translation. Overall, though, as a paraphrase, how is the Passion Translation? Well, uh, in most spots, it's actually adequate as a, tra as a paraphrase. There are a few places where um, they're reading the text differently, and um, there are a few cases where I think they've mistranslated or misled the reader on what's going on. But the bulk of it as a paraphrase is an adequate paraphrase. Paraphrase basically is a way of summarizing the meaning of a text in different words than the actual translation itself. Uh, all translations engage in some level of interpretation. A paraphrase, one usually resorts to a paraphrase to try and bring out fully some of the nuances of, the uh, of what a translation often will leave more obscure unless you know the idiom or something involved. So the, uh, the choice of a paraphrase in a rendering is not a bad thing if you tell people that's what you're doing. But um, so as a paraphrase, it's adequate in most spots, but there are a few places where it's got problems. Yeah. And we'll talk about some of those as well. Um, the, the issue you've already brought up, which is Brian Simmons dealing with the Aramaic texts. And I'm going to give a quote here. Also, this comes from Brian Simmons on their website. He says, this translation reclaims lost Aramaic texts, bringing the full texture of God's word to the surface and helping you recapture the original essence of the teachings of Jesus and his disciples. Now, in Ephesians, in particular, because you studied Ephesians here, Brian Simmons has footnotes that reference the, the Aramaic, in quotes, 33 times just in the book of Ephesians, and he has eight verses in Ephesians that are, quote, translated from the Aramaic. Now, that's really impressive to most people. Your average person's like, wow, I'm getting real access to the original stuff here. What, what do you think we need to know about that? Well, the first thing you need to know about it is that Ephesus is a part of the world in which Aramaic was not the dominant language Greek was. So he's already misplaced actually um, where the Ephesians church fits. Second thing to tell you is anyone who argues that they're dealing with lost manuscripts means that you're dealing with texts you can't see. And, and if they can see them, they better tell you where they are and where you can find them so you can evaluate them. It becomes an unvetted category. You can't vet what you can't see. So, um, so that's a problem. Um, even though there are certain contexts in which Aramaic may have been the dominant spoken language, as I've already said, the New Testament was written in Greek. It, its original manuscripts are in Greek. And so to claim that Aramaic sits behind the New Testament is a mistake in terms of the way the texts themselves were originally written. So now Simmons, he's actually also claims that um, it's okay to use Aramaic to appeal to Aramaic. One of the reasons is because the apostles, he says the apostles, not just Jesus, that they taught in Aramaic. But the Aramaic language, again, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. He taught in Aramaic. The apostles taught in Aramaic as well. We're also incorporating some Aramaic, which is always like it befuddles the scholars why I've done this. Now, as you're going back to, as you said, the Aramaic and the, the Greek that way, did you have concern that there may be some scholars who look at this and, and may not uh, agree with the basic premise? But we're bridging the Aramaic text with the Greek text. It's going to be uh, eye-popping. It's going to look different, feel different, sound different. And I, I welcome and anticipate a lot of scholars bringing their review and bringing their comments to us. Now, when he says this about Ephesians, 
he's suggesting that Ephesians was originally taught and delivered in Aramaic. Um, so you're saying that that's just that's just bunk? No, I think that's unlikely given the nature of the audience of the uh, Ephesian church. Even though there may have been some Jews in it, they would have been diaspora Jews. Diaspora Jews' dominant language would have been Greek, not Aramaic. All right. Now, <clears throat> one more thing on the Aramaic. Um, Brian Simmons likes to talk about homonyms and words that have the same sound but ultimately are different words, different meanings. But he uses homonyms to translate a lot of the time when you see translations, especially without italics. You see additional stuff in the Passion. It's coming from supposedly homonyms. So his his translation gets a lot longer than other translations as a result. In Ephesians in particular, it has 43% more words than, say, the ESV, King James, or NIV by comparison. And what do... What should I be thinking about this? Like, is it legitimate to be appealing to homonyms to double and triple translate words and add new meanings? Now, when Jesus came to me and said, I'm going to give you secrets, one of the secrets he gave me was uh, that of homonyms. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which you haven't got yet, honestly. I did a research study into that word etsev, which is the Hebrew word for pain, but it's a homophone or a homonym that has multiple meanings. And one of the other meanings of pain in the Hebrew context is creativity. Creativity. And I put a footnote there in the book of Genesis to note that. The word for singing is a homonym. Singing is a homonym that also means pruning the vines. Bethlehem is a homonym. Kala is an Aramaic homonym. It's a homonym. Nashak means kiss, but it also means to take up weapons and go to war. Uh, full of homonyms, full of secrets with multiple meanings. Hebrew is poetic and passionate, uh, and one word can mean many multiple things. But what if for 2,000 years the church has been robbed of uh, what Jesus really said. Well, I think you've got two things going on you have to keep separate. Um, the homonym, pro homonym issue is a problem because it's like lost manuscripts. I can play with homonyms and, and generate meanings that actually were not intended. Uh, so that's a problem. Um, the idea of a paraphrase being longer than the translation is not that unusual because, again, a paraphrase is trying to not elaborate nuance oftentimes and to bring out the force of a passage that might not be expressed in the compact expression of the translation. So the fact that the translation is longer than, or sorry, the text is longer than a translation because it has paraphrastic qualities, that in itself is not a problem. But the homonym part of it is because how do you know that a homonym is actually being evoked? Um, and although the culture did play with homonyms in certain situations, um, to treat it as something that's regular or common, particularly in a Greek-speaking context based upon a language that isn't present and that the hearers don't necessarily share is a problem. Okay, so let's look at some specific examples of this kind of stuff that we see in the text. Because again, and, and I just want the audience to know, you're, you're acting, hey, if this is as a paraphrase, it's okay for it to be longer. But what I'm hopefully pointing out, and I love your thoughts on this, is the the reason why it's longer isn't just because it's a paraphrase, which is kind of your perspective on it. But he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm actually getting 
meaning that was thrown into the trash by other translators. That's his phrase. Well, that's why I'm you know. saying it's important not to confuse the two things because I'm saying if he's dealing with a homonym, that's a problem. If he's simply being explanatory for a paraphrase, that's not. One of the things the Lord imprinted on your heart is that he would give you some of the secrets to the language. What do you think some of those are? Well, I think uh, homonyms. Yeah. I think just to, to keep it real short and simple, uh, when he unveiled to me the, the secret of homonyms, that every Hebrew, virtually every Hebrew word, has multiple meanings. And to understand that he's saying both, not just one. Right. And it, it's so powerful. It as enhances we, it. We put it in our footnotes. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Great. Um, now let's look, we'll look at some specific examples. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, you wrote, the emphasis in chapter 1 uh, turns from God to us too much. Can you explain that? And I th- I think maybe verse 8 might have been one of the, at least what stood out to me as a good example of that. Yeah, uh, verse 9. But anyway, yes. Um, the point is, is that this is a praise psalm. So, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything that's being described in verses 3 to 14, which in Greek is one long sentence, is actually looking at the praise of God as the major person to be focused on in the midst of the praise, because that's the point of a praise psalm, is to praise God for what he's done. But one of the things the paraphrase does is to flip it and to flip the emphasis on ter- in terms of who we are in one way or another. And it isn't, it isn't that we don't benefit from what it is God has done for us. That's certainly the case. But the emphasis in the section is to praise God for his, for his giving us every spiritual blessing, for his election, for his foreordaining us, for his sealing us with the spirit, you know, for the redemption that he provides in Christ. I mean, he's the one who's acting in every place and it's our attention is supposed to be drawn to him. So the emphasis to me, it reflects a, a misemphasis of what a praise psalm is supposed to be. Hmm. All right, and then there's places where um, you've said entire sentences are actually added to the text. And chapter 1, verse 19, you mentioned a whole sentence that was added. What sentence was that? It was. It's the reference to advertisement in verse 19, the advertising that goes on. I have the text in front of me. Oh, I can, I'll read it for you. It's, um, yeah. Then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. Yeah, and, and again, he's, he's trying to bring out um, – the implication of what that text would mean and the fact that the fact that we have access to this power it then leads into the application. But the, Paul saves the application for his discussions in chapters 4 to 6. And I, I would guess if we were to ask him, why did you do this? It's, he might be, well, I'm tipping my hand on where the letter is going, which actually is in some ways true, but, um, but it's not expressed in this text. The way Paul normally writes is he lays his doctrinal basis and he doesn't tip his hand along the way. Mm. So if you're going to reflect the style that Paul has, you'd be better off not adding this in. Again, the added in feature is not something that's, that's wrong or doctrinally off. It's just not in the verse. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that this is heresy. We're just asking if it's accurate to right. do that or not. And um in this particular verse, he does it, so it's, it's in a book that's presenting itself as a translation. He has a whole sentence here. There's no italics. There's no footnote. Yeah, there's in no way f- for you to know that, that what has been done here is an elaboration by the person doing the rendering. Okay. 
and that and all these things that we're pointing out here because there's a new version that just came out the 2020 edition but i'm double checking all these to see if he's corrected any of them and so far none of the none of the things we're discussing have been impacted now in chapters 2 verses 1 through 10 you said that simmons translation gives us more authority than we have in the passage can you explain what you meant by that yeah um what we we benefit from christ's authority uh in that passage it's not authority that we possess independently so um the last part of my explanation says um it it says it is the authority that we are seated that's being focused on but we do not have that authority we have access to it that's what he wants them to realize he wants us to realize and this actually 2 1 to 10 is an extension of the prayer so even though there's a chapter break we're still talking about the same theme. And so the point is, is that, you know, by being co-heirs with Christ and, and co-members, et cetera, that we have access to the same power and access to the same God, and we get that through Christ. So it isn't that we bear independent authority, the authority and really the enablement that we have, the power that we have in the New Testament is about enablement we receive because we have the Spirit of God. The enablement that we have, we get from Him. It's important to say that, that what's being talked about here is an authority over principalities and powers. The book is making the point, the epistle is making the point, that the power that we have access to in, in God through Christ is greater than any uh, power that stands against us, any principality or power or spiritual uh, malevolent force that operates against us. This is said real succinctly in the New Testament line that says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so that is a point that Paul is making, but this authority is derived. It's not inherent. You said Brian Simmons' rendering of Ephesians 3.20 is, quote, too anthropocentric. Can you walk us through this verse and explain well, what you mean by that? Well, this is the same complaint as earlier, which is that, that the focus – this is something people often do with the Bible, and frankly, it irritates me, okay? <laughs> and that is um, we met, they make – us the focus rather than the one who is receiving the benefit from God. The attention is drawn away from what it is God is doing to what it is we become. And again, uh, in referencing and referring to alluding to things like dreams and expectations, it almost makes God into our enabler. You know, he enables what we desire and what we will. No, it's the exact reverse. We are enabled to carry out what God gives us the capability to do in line with his will in his direction. That's the emphasis. And so it implies, um, it implies this about miracles and about miracles being more than an enabling presence to walk in his will. And, and yet that's the emphasis of the last three chapters. What God has given us enables us to walk with him, to reflect his person and his character. That's why he does it. And it isn't because of our dreams or our expectations. So when I mean too anthropocentric in this passage, I mean, way too anthropocentric. Yeah, let me, I'll just read it so that everybody can hear. Um, Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. And we can see clearly this is a very me-focused my dreams, my aspirations, God's going to do exactly. what I want. Yeah, yeah. no, that's a, and that's precisely the misdirection. What we're, we're supposed to be responding to God and his direction and his leading and the capability he gives us to do his will, not the reverse. All right, let's um, try to give a big picture answer here, uh, your thoughts on this. Are you getting the same thing that Paul wrote 
when you read the Passion Translation as if it was your only Bible? Uh, well, well, certainly in spots, the answer to that question is no. Uh, and so that, and and then you have no way without another translation of even knowing that that's going on. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. So if you're going to use this translation, the only context in which it would be at all useful or usable, it seems to me, is with a couple of really good translations next to it. So you can see these deviations, hopefully more clearly, and you can tell when it, when it's off the Normally, when this gets done in uh, in something that's called a translation, these additions would have been noted uh, stylistically or in font by italics or something like that, or by a side note in the margin that would be an explanatory note, something like that. But that's not going on here. So you're, you know, you're you're at the translator's mercy in, in this context. Now, there's a number of things that uh, times, excuse me, there's a number of times you mentioned how Brian Simmons changes Ephesians so that when it speaks to the corporate church, it sounds like it's speaking to individuals. And some examples were 222, 413, 422 through 24. Why why should that issue be something we care about? Because West has ended up creating a distorted reading of the Bible because we tend to think of our spirituality strictly in individualistic terms, whereas in the Bible, the emphasis normally is much more corporate. It's how I'm connected to other people and how we function as a group that's important. It's a little bit like the English language where we use the word you, and we don't know whether I'm talking about you, meaning you singular you, or you all, as we like in the South. Okay, and there are a lot more y'alls in the Bible than yous, generally speaking. So you want to think corporately, generally speaking, as opposed to just strictly individually, individualistically. We tend to think of ourselves as being in this hermetically sealed spiritual bubble in our walk with God, and God likes to burst that bubble and connect us to other people. Mm. Good stuff. You're preaching. <laughs> I like it. You noted Brian Simmons' use of revealed truth in Ephesians 5.11. What is your concern there? It's just that revealed truth is vague. Um, what the light is doing in that passage is exposing it. You know, when something's going on in the dark, you can't see it. The moment you turn on a light, you can see it. So the emphasis in this passage is that the presence of the light is designed to expose what is going on. In, and probably in the context of this passage, it's exposed by contrast. There's a contrastive way that believers are to live that stands out in opposition from the world. We're in a context in which it's the way the world functions. It's in view. And so, uh, so, the, so the righteous life is designed to expose by contrast the deeds. The reflection of the gospel is designed to, refu- by, to reflect by contrast uh, the deeds of the world and to bring it out. And, the, and then there's a suggestion of accountability and a need for the gospel to respond to the gospel as a result that's coming later in the passage. And so that's all being set up by what this is said. So revealed truth just simply puts at the level of ideas. And really in Ephesians 4 to 6, we're much more in the world of actions and, and activities and not just in the world of the ideas that are in my head. So do you think that that the translation in the Passion, that that would alter the application of the passage in some would fashion? Limit, it would limit it, and it would limit it too narrowly so that it does passage doesn't have as wide an expanse, as wide an application as it ought to have. Great. And let's talk about the um, section on marriage roles. Um, while I'm not interested in taking positions, we're talking about translation here, there's a section here in... 
uh, verse 24 of chapter 5, and it talks about devote instead of submit, that sort of thing. So how does the Passion Translation handle the whole idea of marriage roles? Well, I, again, this idea of devotion is probably a way of trying to say, in other words, what submit becomes. But again, it's limiting in, in, in communicating uh, what the passage is ultimately about. In, in, I, don't know what he, I don't remember what he does in 521, but in 521, we've got a mutual submission to one another. I'm, I'd be interested to see if that was translated a mutual devotion to one another or not. I actually don't know the answer to that question. Don't I'll, remember it. I'll look that up right now. I'll just take 10 seconds. Okay. Um, and this is in the, in the 2020 edition. I'm making sure that none of the criticisms have disappeared because of his right. uh, uh, revision. Um, out of your reverence for Christ, be supportive of each other in love. Yeah, supportive isn't quite as strong as submissive, but it, it's that at least is going in, in an applicationally reasonable direction. I'll say it that way. But of course, the problem here is, is that you've got submit in 521. You have no verb in 522, but the verb that you're getting in 522 is coming from 521 mm -hmm. about submission. And then verse 24 is the summary of the remarks to the wife where submission is then repeated. So you should have submission, submission, and submission. Now, I need to say alongside that the way in which hierarchy is seen in the Bible is not the way hierarchy is seen in the culture at large. And that's part of what Paul is challenging in this section. So that even though he's calling on wives to submit and husbands to love, the love and the role that the husband has in loving is, is a considerate kind of exercise of power and not a raw exercise of power. And the Bible is redefining how hierarchy works in this section, even though it has love for the husband and submit for the wife important in this context. One of the things a paraphrase should do, if it's going to be a good paraphrase, is to bring out some of the forces of, of those kinds of nuanced differences, so you aren't simply importing the way you think a word works into a context. I'm not sure uh, devote and well, I forgot what the other one had, a mutual, I, I forgot how you had 521. Um, um, supporting. I'm not sure that quite does it. But it, but, um, but it's not, it's not as problematic as some other sections of the book. I'll say it that way. Now, it might surprise you to know this, but uh, Brian Simmons he actually says that the reason why he translates that devote is because he went to the Aramaic, which he acclaims again is the original. Don't go there. You know, Brian Simmons was telling me at dinner last night about some revelations he got in translating the Bible about women. Tell me one. Wives. Submit yourselves unto your husband as unto the Lord. That is That's a pretty powerful. Da daunting uh, command. But the Aramaic language, again, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. He taught in Aramaic. The apostles taught in Aramaic as well. The Aramaic text is wives be tenderly devoted to your husband as the church is tenderly devoted to Christ. Just don't do it. <laughs> Okay. He makes, it's a waste of time, energy, misleads the person reading it. Just don't do it. Don't, uh, don't be so devoted to the Aramaic that you act up not being devoted to the text. Amen. <laughs> there you go, in a nutshell. All right, let's look at Ephesians 6.5. Um, he changes uh, slaves or bondservants 
in this instruction of, you know, slaves obey your earthly masters, that's the NIV. And he says, um, those who are employed should listen to their employers. Can you comment on this? Yeah, I think this is an attempt to apply the text in a current environment in which generally slavery doesn't exist, but employment does. But you can't make that simple move. Um, the, the relationship that an employer has to an employee is different than the slave master relationship. So you've got to go through steps before you think about how to apply this text to an employer-employee relationship. It isn't a one-to-one. So that obscures the way the applicational move should be made, particularly coming out of a translation. Yeah. So in other words, we've skipped translating and we've gone to the application. And at least in my observation, preaching points are placed in the text of the Passion Translation a lot like this. Yeah, and I and again, sometimes a paraphrase will do this or move in this direction. The question is whether it's done it well. And in this particular case, there's enough difference between slaves and employed that you don't just simply make the move. So, so not only we set Aramaic aside, not only we set homonyms aside, but we want to be very careful about how we make the applicational moves. Some of those we're going to want to set to the side as well. And so that lowers the value of the translation in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you walk us through Ephesians 6, verse 9? And I'll, I'll read it to us in the ESV. We have, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who's both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him, a, a more strict translation. And then the Passion says, and to the caretakers of the flock, and the subject has changed, I say, do what is right with your people. Uh, with your people by forgiving them when they offend you, for you know there is a master in heaven that shows no favoritism. Yeah, I, I don't know what's happened here, unless he's just simply decided to apply it to church leaders mm-hmm. and make them the caretakers of the flock, or perhaps in the back of his mind is, well, the family is viewed as a uh, as a shepherd with sheep. I mean, maybe, but my point here is this is not about caretakers of the flock. This is not an ecclesiastical context at all, which is what that would suggest to me upon reading it. No, these are masters of slaves. This is in a Greco-Roman family context in which slaves were considered part of the family and the way in which you handled the household, because this is a household code, basically. Um, and do not threaten is the ex- exhortation, not forgiving them. So he's flipped the threatening. He's taken the negative and made it positive. But mm-hmm. the the warning to the, to the master is don't abuse your power. Um, and so he hasn't done it with a positive example. He's done it with a negative example. That's been lost in the move. Would you be surprised to see there's a footnote in the 2020 edition that oh, no, says that that is, is coming tra- at us? That it's translated from the Aramaic? Oh, well, you know, I don't care what the reason is. I've already said when it comes to Aramaic readings of of these texts, um, please just don't do it. It hurts me. (laughs) I love it. Okay, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you have, you know, looking at the idea of the Passion Translation now, it's millions have been sold and it's been endorsed by major like pastors, especially in the more hyper charismatic Circles now. I'm charismatic, so I'm not trying to criticize the circles themselves, but um, but it's been endorsed by a lot. It's growing rapidly. It's being seen as a translation. Actually, it's being seen as if it's the revival Bible that has like new revelation into the text that has never before been known. Like that's kind of the reputation it has in these circles. Um, but all that in mind, do you have anything positive that you would want us to know about the Passion Translation? Um, well, I'm. Uh 
it's a hard question. I mean, obviously, I've got problems with it. I think it's too charismatic for its own good. Um, but um, uh, and, and the problem is the, the danger of being too charismatic is that you will add to the word of God or you will misrepresent the word of God. People need the word of God as it is. They don't need it added to and they don't need it misrepresented. And the further away we get from what the word of God is, the more we introduce things into people's understanding that may in the end not be helpful to them and actually sorting out what it is that the Bible says. And we're interested in the Bible as God's revelation for what it says, not what we think it might say. Good stuff. Now, I'm going to give you some quick fire questions. We're coming towards the end here. So I'd like to get your one sentence response to each of these uh, quotes. This is These are things that are on the Passion Translations website, their official site, where they're trying to educate people on the nature of the translation. So the first one is this. The Passion Translation is an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to seriously study God's Word. Okay, well, um, two problematic words there are the word excellent and primary, okay? It's adequate in most places. It should never be your primary text. All right, here's your response to this one. And this is um, from Pastor uh, Bill Johnson, who is a extremely highly, he's a high-profile, famous, and highly respected pastor, and he has said, that the Passion Translation is, quote, one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my lifetime. Probably has too much passion for the passion. Um, uh, That's way too too high a level of praise for what this is. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it it just is. I mean, it's it's an adequate translation. It's one of several that are, well, it's an adequate paraphrase. It's one of several that are out there. And I can name, probably on two hands, translations and paraphrases that would be better. Would you, would you recommend one? If someone's like, I just really want to paraphrase, what would you suggest is a good one? Well, uh, I mean, the, the New Living Translation, which now calls itself a translation, is kind of a halfway house between a paraphrase and a translation. It's pretty good, and it, it gives you notes along the way sometimes to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. Um, uh, Gene Peterson's The Message is, is reasonably good, although in spots I think he, he falls to the, same, to the same problems, to the same problems that this does. The challenge of a paraphrase is, well, let me say it this way. Um, traditionally, it's been said of translations that there are always, there's always some lies in a translation that you can't exactly replicate between one language and another, all that's going on between them. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge of a translation is it usually has to be compact, but to give the full force of what's happening in one language and translate to the other, something gets lost in the transmission. That's inevitably the case. That's why scholars learn the language, Mm -hmm. so that they can actually get a sense of what is really going on. Having said that, uh, what happens with a paraphrase is you're trying to play with that dimension and bring it a little more, what may be implicit, make it more explicit, which involves a lot more judgment. Mm-hmm. And and the more judgments you make, the more likely that some judgments will be good and other judgments will be eh. And so there, and, and the problem with this paraphrase is it looks like it has a lot of judgments that are on the eh side instead of the good side. Yeah. 
No, what's funny is I'm talking to scholars and I've, you're not the first one to suggest that the message is actually a pretty decent work. And I've, in my own, having looked at it, not with the depth that you guys can, but having looked at it, I'm like, I would never recommend it. Um, not because it's heretical again, it's just, I'm like, Sin Saloon and Psalm 1, like those kinds of things. But you, you really do think the message is pretty good, huh? Yeah, I think it's decent enough. I mean, you know, it. what 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 a paraphrase is often trying to do is to give you the emotional punch of a passage alongside its meaning. Mm -hmm. And Peterson has a pretty good sense of what the emotional punch is and how you might say it if you were to say it in English rather than the way you would say it in Greek. And so, um, so I give him, I give him passing marks for, for making that element of the transition, um, in, in ways, again, you're searching for the language, but it's in line with the direction of the passage and the emotional thrust of the passage, which he's trying to bring to the fore. So I think if you understand what he's doing, um, to, to use my older audio analogy, I think there's more good on that side than there is and. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, now, the uh, here's another quote for you. They say, the Passion Translation is committed to bringing forth the potency of God's word in a in relevant contemporary vocabulary that doesn't distract from its meaning or distort it in any way. Yeah, I think the last part of that phrase is problematic because I do think there are distortions. Uh, I do think the first two thirds of it is what a paraphrase, generally speaking, attempts to do. And so... Um, uh, and again, the, the, obviously the people who have published this believe in what it is that's been done. Um, I'm uh, not quite as confident in the consistency of what you have here. Um, and it certainly doesn't rise to the level at which some of these quotes have suggested. So again, I would say, do you want to set it alongside something else? Perhaps. But this is not going to be your primary way to access the Word of God. Right on. Now, in your opinion... Um, your, just your honest opinion, because I don't know what your answer to this will be. <laughs> and that's kind of the point of this project is to get the unfiltered feedback of different guys. Should the Passion Translation be in bookstores, Bible apps, and places like Bible Gateway alongside other Bible translations being presented as if it is a translation with the footnotes it's got? I would prefer that it be uh, described in its distribution as what it is, which is a paraphrase and a reflective paraphrase. And even uh, in places... Uh, it has speculation because it's tied to sources and claims about sources that uh, are really hard to run down. It's not clear where where the moves are coming from. You know, when you get a when you get a translation in English of a Greek text, the people who do the translation can tell you the Greek text that that's coming from. And you, if you have a knowledge of the language, you can go and look up what's there what the basis for the move is, et cetera. A note that claims that this is a homonym or a note that says this is an Aramaic text. I, I grant that for an English reader to tell someone what the Aramaic text is and to even render it at in transliteration is going to do most readers no service. But to have some idea of what it is specifically we're talking about so that someone who does not have knowledge can go and check it out, that, that this translation doesn't give you even that possibility for those who do have that skill. So there's no way to vet or check if the move that's been made is actually a legitimate one other than the claim of the text. And a claim is not the same as showing forth the basis for doing something. All right now, you, you, you looked at Ephesians in particular, and so I don't know how much else you may have examined. But Didn't look at anything else at all. 
Okay, great. Well, so just from just from Ephesians, um, do you think it appears to you that, forgive me for the way I have to word this, but we got to respond to the claims that are being made, that God gave Brian Simmons secrets of Greek that scholars have overlooked for all these years? I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms in the book of Psalms. It will take your breath away. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs. The Lord showed me it's the homonymic... Uh, structure of Hebrew is going to be the key to understanding Revelation in the last days, including the book of Revelation, which you haven't got yet, honestly. I'm mega understating it. God really helped me do this translation. I've made some discoveries. I don't know who to talk to. I mean, I'm finding out all these secrets and I'm translating. And going, ah. When he unveiled to me the, the secret of homonyms. Revelation secrets. I told you that the Lord had given me secrets, and he has. And he blew on me. And he breathed on me. He breathed on me. He breathed on me. He promised that he would give me new understanding and new, fresh revelation from his word. And uh, he promised that he would uh, give me secrets that had not been disclosed. I began to receive a supernatural download of insight and revelation that has continued to this day. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. Secrets that only come from above. The secrets of the Lord. He's beginning to share them with me, and I'd like to share them with you. Is that a good enough commercial? That claim is so incredibly arrogant, I can hardly believe it. Um, the, the reason most translations have team of translators is because it takes more than one person to produce a good translation, much less a good paraphrase. So, uh, so I think that way of framing the discussion, the fact that it's on primarily one person already shows a little bit of a problem with the whole approach, uh, to the, to the way in which, uh, these texts have been rendered. It makes this me, my cackles rise. <laughs> Whatever a cackle is, I'm not, now that I realize I don't know what that is. But at any rate, uh, what gets me going is the idea that Brian Simmons, as I've researched this, he doesn't actually have any sort of degree from a legitimate institution that we can track down. I've looked and looked and looked and asked and asked. Um, he has a degree um, from the Wagner Institute that has a focus on prayer. And he, what he does have is a claim, for instance, that in Romans, I'll talk to Douglas Moo about this, but in Romans, God came and touched his forehead and expanded his mental capacity um, to translate. It wasn't long after that that he came again. It was in a dream. And he touched my forehead, came and touched my forehead right here, right here, and said, I'm increasing your capacity to know me. <sighs> touched me right there. And then I woke up. So in your opinion, does it look like this guy's qualified to do the kind of thing he's doing here? If those are the qualifications, the answer is clearly he falls short of what's necessary to be a translator or even a paraphraser uh, because you've got to understand what's going on in the original context and in the original language to be able to make that kind of a move. Um, so, and, and the, uh, I, the danger of the claim is, is that anyone can make that kind of a claim as a way of protecting the moves that they make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I applaud you for having a straight face while answering that question. <laughs> some, some maturity and skill you've got there. All right, let's, uh, we're almost done here. Let's pretend 
that a Christian turns to you and they say, I'm getting the Passion Translation. My pastor says it's like the best thing that has happened to Bible translation in our lifetime. They love the Passion Translation. They feel like it's really blessed them. If you had just like 10 seconds to tell them what they need to know about this work, what would you say? I would say I love your passion for the Word of God, but your passion shouldn't be for the Passion Translation. It should be for the Word of God as it is. And there are better translations that accomplish that. Amen. All right. Now, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about the Table Podcast. Now, I'm a fan of the Table Podcast. I watch many episodes, but in my opinion, not enough people are watching your episodes. And so I'm linking them below. You guys can check out uh, Dr. Bach's work on the Table Podcast, interviewing great people, bringing you information like that. I mean, it's it's good. Like it's access to scholarly, helpful stuff, a lot of apologetics things, theology things. So um, here I'm talking about it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys, what you guys do? <laughs> I'll just let you keep going. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's 46 minutes every week dedicated. Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. Wherever God and culture cross, the table covers. So we cover world religions. We cover theology. We cover apologetics. We cover psychology in the Bible. We talk about the way in which uh, our shifts in culture and pluralism impact the church. It's a wide array of stuff. We never do series where we start on a topic and go for it several weeks in a row. We're always mixing. But in the background, we're building an archive of topics and themes that you can come to. We've done almost 300 hours of material in eight years in over, I think, I think we're around 400 episodes or something like that, uh, 400 topics. So the archive is big um, and you can run. We've done series on world religions and we focused extremely on Eastern religions that most people don't know about. We've done a series on the Nicene Creed. We've done apologetics related to Christmas and Easter. Um, but then we also discuss, we've discussed same-sex marriage. We discuss racial justice. I mean, it covers, you know, and you turn in any Tuesday and we get to surprise you on what it is that we're going to talk about. I, I, I really like it. And um, yeah, I do recommend you guys check it out. I'll put a link below to a, a, the playlist of all the table podcasts because on your YouTube channel, you guys have the playlist there on the DTS YouTube channel. So yeah, that's something I recommend. doesn't mean I agree with everything, just like I'm sure Dr. Bach wouldn't agree with me on everything. That's But I think it's a great resource. Um, so yeah. So Dr. Bach, thank you so much for being part of this project. Like, honestly, we're saving the church from a, a, a new Holy Spirit guru guy that's got his own translation that the more, if you looked beyond Ephesians, you'd you'd see <laughs> there's even more stuff in the books he likes the best he changes the most revelation is particularly interesting but um but at any rate thank you so much for for being part of this i do appreciate it my pleasure mike the next interview in this series is with dr douglas moo and i get to ask him about this god really helped me with this translation with romans in particular i'll just i'll leave it at that i'm mega understating it. God really helped me do this translation. Romans is a hard book. I don't know. I, I translated it, but it was hard. I didn't even get through the first chapter. I'm saying, God, you got to help me. This is like, this is serious stuff. I mean, Paul's a genius. Two in the morning. I'm literally shaken awake by an angel. And it was this angel that filled the, the floor to ceiling. He says, I've come for the presence of God to help you. You might want to read Romans. Uh, I had such help. That interview comes out January 6th, and there's going to be a playlist and links. All that stuff's down below. Stay tuned. Make sure to subscribe if you if you want notifications for when these videos are coming out. Otherwise, I will see you guys on January 1st. On New Year's Day, I will be doing a live stream at 1 p.m. Pacific time, and I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Hey, Brian, any final words? Why, why don't we get translations that give us the real deal?